Marvel movies, right? These things are pretty popular. <clears throat> it's funny, I'm not like a huge comic book movie fan, but I remember I went with um, Steven to the last Avengers movie. Like, uh, I, if, I don't know if it was opening weekend. It, there were a lot of people there. And it was just really funny to see everybody cheering. Because, okay, I'm going to be honest. When I saw that movie with him, I hadn't seen the first part of that series, you know? And people were cheering at all these weird times, and I was like, I'm confused. And people were, like, crying, and I didn't really know what happened. And <clears throat> but anyway, these Marvel movies, right, they're massive. What's the, and not just Marvel, but just kind of all superheroes, right? What's the appeal of the superhero, right? It appeals to that part of us that wishes we were stronger, I think is a big thing, right? Um, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and no offense to any of you who love these movies, but I'm pretty sure the key demographic with comic books, right, is the kids who get picked on have these, like, fantasies of the being the strong guy, right? Look at, look at all of these superheroes. They're all, they go from wimp to, like, superhero, right? So Captain America, right, his whole thing is he was that scrawny little dude, and what did they do? They pumped him with some radiation juice or something, and now he's, you know, is it Chris Evans? Uh, you know what I mean? Um, Hulk, right? What is he? He's a weird science dork who invents a way to become super strong. Iron Man. He goes from literally a broken heart, like his heart doesn't work right, to he puts that thing in his chest and all of a sudden he's a superhero. Batman goes from victim to hero. Superman is kind of the ultimate picture of strength. Right? I always make, whoever thought of Superman, by the way, is the laziest writer, right? What's his superpowers? All of them. He shoots lasers out of his eyes. Oh, he's really fast. Oh, he can fly. He's strong. It's like, come on, man, like pick one. Make it interesting, at least. But anyway, those are the kind of stories we love, is the, the story where the weak becomes the hero, the, the weak to strength. Um, there's no blockbuster movies for the summer, you know, the big summer blockbuster. They don't make summer blockbusters about the weak, right? They're all about, the, about strength. There's no movie about a guy like Superman walking away from it all to take care of his sick mother. Right? That's kind of a boring movie. There's no, you know what I mean? Oh, let me grab this. Um, all those movies are about just like these pictures of strength. Now, what is strength and why do we love it? Well, the Bible tells us, you know, we talk about this probably every week, but the Bible tells us sort of the story of how the human race works now and what happened to us. And the picture of uh, kind of what sin has done to us. And the very first sin was demanding to the Lord, I want control of my own life. I need that control. I don't want you to be the one with control. Demanding we get our own way. And in most situations, we want our own way, don't we? That's power. Stre you know, strength is being able to get what you want, being able to get your own way. And so it's why so many terrible people are drawn to politics, right? They're after control. You ever hear that? Like, I remember hearing that when I was a kid. The problem with the presidency is everybody who would be good at it is doesn't want to do it, <laughs> right? And everybody who wants to do it is terrible at it, right? That's kind of the problem, right? Um, the ability, though, to have our own way, to get our own way, it's enticing, it's alluring. And for, right, it's why for thousands of years, you know, for basically all of human history, men who are generally, not in every case, but generally the stronger ones, 
dominate women who are the weaker physically, you know what I mean? Um, like, look throughout all of human history. That's kind of how it's worked, because guys are fallen and sinful and strong, and they like to get their own way. It's why majority groups have kept minorities down. It's why people ache for, I mean, one of the reasons, not the only reason, don't read too much in this, but, you know, why a lot of people want the promotion at work, right? Because then I can be the one who makes the decisions, and I can be the one who has that control, um, honestly, in church, it's why there's a lot of clowns out there posing as pastors, right? Because this, this honestly happens a lot. Is there somebody who wants to be in control of something? They go to the business world and they try it, and they're not that bright. They're not that dynamic of a leader. Nobody wants to follow them, and it doesn't work. And then they flip it and become pastors instead because it's a pretty easy place to get a little bit of control, you know, and I've met a lot of these guys, and it's kind of sad, because the, you know, the, the allure, right, if you, I'll jump back and say, like, if you listen to that Mars Hill podcast a couple months ago that came out, it was all about sort of power and corrupting power inside of the church, right? This is what happens. We love the, the strength, but also at the same time, that love of strength really comes out of the fallenness of what happened um, in the garden and, and fallen human nature. Today we're going to read about this. We're going to read about how the kingdom of God takes this picture of strength where everybody below me serves me, and i got to get myself to the top. And it takes that pyramid and it flips it upside down. The kingdom of God is about working your way to the bottom. It's about something else. It's about a completely different paradigm than the paradigm that we see in the world. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to do something a little bit different than what we normally do. When I first started Luke with you guys, one of the things I said was there's a few ways to work your way through a book of the Bible. You can think of it like looking at San Francisco. You can fly over San Francisco in a, what's it, 30,000 feet? Is that where a jet flies? 30,000 feet, right? And you see, oh, there's San Francisco. Or you could take that seaplane that always buzzes my house from Marin and does the loop around San Francisco, or you can walk the streets of San Francisco. Those are three very different ways to see the city. Most of the book of Luke, we've been walking the streets, right? We've been going pretty slow. It's been two years. We're only on chapter 18. Uh, we're going to finish right in time for Advent this year, I think, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Uh, that's the plan, is to finish the week before Advent. Today, what we're going to do, though, is we're going to do it a little different. We're going to jump back and get on the seaplane, okay? So we're going to do all of chapter 18 today. So we got to fly. We got to hustle, because... Um, there's a lot to cover here today. All right, here we go. Ready? And he told them a parable to the effect, sorry, uh, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and to not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For, while he uh, for a while, he refused. But afterwards, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because of this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Okay, so real quick, the context of this passage is, if you remember the last thing we were talking about, was that last week, was uh, end time stuff. And we talked about the tribulation 
and sort of eschatology and all that. So Jesus has been teaching about that. That's the context. So at the beginning of this parable, he gives the meaning of the parable when he says that disciples should always pray and not lose heart because some of that end time stuff was probably pretty overwhelming. So now he says, look, you need to pray and not lose heart. Uh, whenever, remember, that's the general rule of interpreting a parable. Whenever Jesus gives you the meaning of it, you just go with that, right? It's pretty easy to interpret. So this is the point of the parable is it's an encouragement to his elect, to his people to keep on praying, keep on praying. As the tribulation happens around you, and as you're living in this church age, you need to be a people of deep and thoughtful and earnest and desperate prayer, right? And what he says is pray always, Real prayer is coming to God and saying, I need you. I need this relationship with you. I need stuff from you. Uh, Prayer should never be, here's what I've done for you. Real prayer is, I need from you. You're the sovereign Lord. You're the king. It's it's coming to God and saying, I'm weak, and you're the one who's the strength. You're the one with the strength. Now, the widow, as a character in this parable, he picks a widow on purpose because in this culture, a widow was absolutely completely helpless. They had no power. They had no support system, right? They were completely reliant on family and friends to support them, that sort of stuff, right? Um, so the way to interpret this parable, right? Uh, wait, hold on. Melissa, real quick. Can you go check our car? Yeah, I don't know. I thought I saw... Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> because we're parked out front. I don't know if they're towing cars. I saw something go by. Um, <clears throat> anyway, what was it saying? Oh, yeah. So here's the parable. This guy is a judge, and he sucks at it, right? He's Judge Judy. You know, he's mean, and nobody likes him. And uh, this lady comes, and she's a widow, and she says, hey, help me out. And he goes, no. She says, but, you know, this is what happened. Help me out. He goes, no. So she comes back the next day. Hey, help me out. No. Goes back the next day. Hey, give me justice. No. Comes back. Fine. Shut up. I'll give you justice. <laughs> right? That's the parable. Now, a lot of you don't want to interpret this parable and go, so I need to pray a lot because God's not going to do it the first time. He's not going to do it the second time. But if I bother God enough with my prayers, he'll, that's not how you interpret this parable. Right? This parable is, goes like this. This is how you interpret it. This judge stinks. He's a terrible person. He doesn't fear God or man. He's selfish, and he's only in this for himself. And even he eventually gave justice to this woman. Now, what if a judge was good? You wouldn't have to go back 50 times, right? So God is the better version of this judge. So if God is that person, and he wants to give justice to his elect, then he's the person worth praying to. He's the person worth bringing your prayer requests, right? Okay, so that's the first pericope, right? There's your, what is that? That's our $5 word for the day. It just means like section of the Bible, right? That's our first section is this is the judge worth praying for, and the character in it is this helpless widow. Let's keep going. The next is the religious guy and the traitor. Uh, Verse 9, he also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and then treated others with contempt. So the next parable he tells specifically, again, when the Bible gives us the answer, we go with that. So right here he gives us the answer. 
This parable was to those who trusted them themselves that they were righteous. I can earn God's love, and that guy stinks compared to me. So Jesus tells those guys a parable. There's a lot of these kind of people, aren't there? This is how it works. Um, uh, the essence of all kind of religion is I'm going to work my way to God. I'm going to bridge the gap. I'm going to be righteous enough. But to lift yourself up like that is hard because, well, it's actually impossible. You can't. There's always that sin inside you, and you know there's, <coughs> sorry, you know there's sin inside you. So if you need to be lifted up, the easiest way to do it is instead of actually lifting yourself up because you can't, is to make sure everybody else is down. And then all of a sudden, you're above everybody else. And that's what these Pharisees do. That's what these, you know, we'll read about this Pharisee in a minute. I'm going to knock everybody down a peg so that I feel superior. So Jesus tells a parable about one of these guys. Verse 10, he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Okay, so we've talked about both of these groups a hundred times in the book of Luke. The Pharisees were the, the, the church people. These were the guys who were there early, and they were setting up, and they were putting things away in the closet, and they were donating a lot of money, and uh, they were super involved, and they were bringing friends to Wednesday night all so that they could feel better about themselves. The tax collectors were the traitors, right? Now, this is not a one-to-one -one comparison, but I was thinking about this this week. What's the closest thing we have to a tax collector in our culture? What's like the one person that if you, you know, everybody in our culture across all the political spectrums and everybody goes, that's the worst person in our culture? And the answer is child molesters. Now, that's not the same crime, but how you feel if, imagine this, if I said, hey, we hired a new associate pastor. Now, look, if you look him up on that list, he's on there and he used to be, a, he's a child molester, but it's okay. Would you guys let me hire him? Right? That feeling you're getting right now, that's the feeling Jesus wants you to have. Okay? That's the feeling these people had towards tax collectors. They were awful and they were traitors. You know what I mean? Like another kind of common example that I've seen pastors use is back during um, World War II, you know, Hitler comes to power in Poland and different places, and he creates these ghettos. And some of the Jewish people in those ghettos were like, you know what, to keep my family safe, I'm going to work for Hitler. Right? And they would be sheriffs or whatever kind of thing. After the war, it went really bad for those people. Okay? That's kind of a more actual honest, like, that, that's how people felt about tax collectors. So you have the good old church guy and the tax collector. So let's see what happens. The Pharisee, standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He did this. He pointed to him like this. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Okay, look at this prayer. It goes like this. Me, 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 I, 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 I. Amen. <laughs> right? But I'll, I'll be honest. I, I, I've done a few weddings. I hate when, <clears throat> I've been to a lot of weddings. I hate when couples write their own vows. No, no uh, you know, I don't know if anybody here wrote their own vows, but I can't stand this. I vow to love you like flowers love sunshine. I'm like, oh my gosh, kill me now. You know, I'm in the back. Like, that doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? Um, I'm actually really glad because when I did John and Erica's wedding, I was like, are you guys going to write your own vows? They were like, no, just tell us what to say. I was like, thank goodness. Yeah, that's how you do it. So good for them. <clears throat> but anyway, imagine that a groom recites the vows. 
okay, for this point of this illustration. He gets up, opens this crumpled up piece of paper. I thank you for marrying me. It's obvious that you have great taste in men. This is his wedding vows. It's obvious that you only like men who have a lot of money and nice cars. You clearly only like men that all the ladies want, and you're the one that I chose. And of course, you also only like men who are very humble. <laughs> and everybody knows that I'm the most humble, so I'm glad to be marrying you. Right? Okay, if somebody had vows even close to something like that, you would go, this is the worst human being I've ever seen. You'd get up and walk out of the wedding. I don't want to be here for the rest of this. <laughs> right? uh, dude, you didn't even mention your wife, by the way, in your vows. That's the prayer of this Pharisee. You could see the arrogance just dripping out of his prayer. Me, 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 while at the same time knocking others down. I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. He sucks. I'm so glad I'm a better guy than him, right? <laughs> right? It's like, also, I guess you could say it's like adding in the vows, this guy in our imaginary vows. I'm thankful that you've traded up from that last bum that you had of a boyfriend, <laughs> right? This is what this guy is doing. He's, what makes him so arrogant? He lists his credentials. Well, I'm not an extortioner or unjust. I don't cheat on my wife. I fast twice a week. The Old Testament only had fasts two times a year, right? So this guy was multiplying that by a whole bunch. It's like bragging. It's like praying on a Wednesday night. Let's pray. Let's go around the circle and pray. Lord, I thank you that I'm so great, and I take communion 25 times a day. And be like, you know, that's not how that works, man. <laughs> right? this, is, this is what he was doing. I give tithes of all I get. Right? You remember the part about they, they tithe the, the herbs. Okay, you know, a couple of mustard seeds for you and a couple for me. This is this guy. This is what he's bringing before the Lord and saying, this is why you should accept me. But the tax collector, sorry, <clears throat> The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So he's standing far off, he won't even, and he won't even look up. You can, you, it's such a vivid image. You can picture how much shame this guy is carrying around. You know, you've seen people like this, just completely broken and ashamed. Won't even look up, won't even stand near you. But what does he do? He begs for mercy. The Pharisee wants what's coming to him. I've earned it. God, this is what I did. Here's all my crap. This is what I've done for you. The tax collector doesn't bring any accomplishments. What does he bring to this equation? Sin. That's all he brings. I love that quote. I should have wrote this down. I didn't. I, I forget who said this. But the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Right? I forget who said that. But this is what this tax collector does. And then verse 14, he says, Jesus says this about these two guys. You have the bum and the, the other bum. <laughs> but Jesus says, only one of these guys gets saved. For I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Justification is this courtroom language. One of these guys is saved, the other's not. Again, kingdom reversal. Who do we have in the first story? The judge and the widow. The widow gets it, you know, she's the one that is lifted up as the example. In this one, not the powerful judge. In this one, not the Pharisee, the tax collector. Let's keep going. Verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. Uh, 
And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. So the next group of people is children, right? The next characters in the story, children. They were bringing kids to Jesus for a blessing, which was like a common thing in this culture. You know, you bring the kid to a famous or popular rabbi for a blessing over their life for prosperity and children and the whole thing, right? So the disciples rebuked the parents. Now let's think about this for a sec. Look at Jesus' ministry. <clears throat> Sorry. What is he doing with his time? He's healing, but there's, there's times where they say there's not even enough time to heal everybody. He's teaching about the kingdom. That takes up a lot of time. Blessing these kids seems like a pretty low priority to the disciples. Kids at this point were at the bottom of the social ladder. Um, They were useless until they could start working. That's kind of how people viewed kids in this culture. To the point where the Romans would even take kids they didn't want and just leave them out by the side of the road and let them die. Like that's the value of life in this culture. The disciples probably in this thought they were acting wisely. Jesus has more important things to do and we're going to be the gatekeepers that keep this stuff off of his desk prioritizing Jesus's time, right? Now, Jesus, he says, no, 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 I want to bless these kids. I want to hang out with these kids, and you should be like these kids. That's what he tells the disciples. Now, when we think of what Jesus is saying here about childlike faith, I think our minds go like this. Kids are dumb, and they'll believe anything, right? Because the truth is kids are dumb, and they'll believe anything. I trick our kids all the time. It's hilarious. (laughs) Right, like when I was a kid, this is a true thing, and this is how you know it's true because I still remember this 30 years later, 30-something years later. When I was a kid, my grandpa convinced me his middle name was Algebrona Fostafoniostigus. I still be- I believed it for years because I was a dumb kid, you know, and I still remember it. I can say it again, Algebrona Fostafoniostigus. See, I remember. It's the same thing every time. For years. His middle name was Arthur, I think. <laughs> Not even close. Anyway, so we think this is like you just got to believe whatever because you're a kid and you're dumb. Uh, But that's not what Jesus, like faith is not just intellectual belief, right? Faith is so much more than that. Faith is um, uh, about trust and dependence. And that's, I think, what Jesus is getting at here. Faith like a child is a dependence on him the way that children are dependent on their parents. Now, even like it's been fun to watch the girls kind of grow up and uh, do, like Melissa and I always say to each other, well, they're so old right, when they're doing something without us that they used to need us to do. But I mean, here it specifically says infants, faith like infants, are completely and utterly dependent on a parent to do anything. An infant can't do anything. And I think that's the context, right? Um, Jesus, I think, or Luke, sorry, specifically places this story right after the tax collector for a reason. One of those guys was dependent on the father for mercy. The other one was not. And then Jesus says, One of those guys was saved, the other wasn't. Now, you need to have faith that's totally dependent, just like the tax collector. You see how that flows? All right, so next, let's keep going. So, be like the tax collector, be like this child, moving on. And a a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So, this ruler was probably like a synagogue ruler, a pastor, but their pastors had a lot more... um, Their pastors had a lot more social standing than our pastors do, right? We're like spiritual leaders and stuff, but they also ran the community, 
right? And so this guy could have been that. He might have been a member of the Sanhedrin, you know, the, the, the real high-up leaders, whoever he was. He comes to Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you see the flaw with his question? He's just like the Pharisee. Me, me, me. What do I need to do to earn my way back to God? He says, I can do this. I can earn it. Verse 19, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. That could be a whole sermon. We're going to kind of really fly past this. Jesus is not saying he's not God. What he's doing is he's challenging the ruler. Do you think I'm God? You're using God words to talk about me. And we'll see in a second, he does not think he's God because he refuses to follow him. Verse 20. So this is Jesus' answer. It's kind of flippant almost. You know the commandments, right? You're, the, so you're on the Sanhedrin or whatever. You're the pastor, right? Do not commit adultery. Don't murder. Do not steal. Bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. All, you know. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. So this is what Jesus does. He gives him a very sort of flippant answer, what he expects to hear. And he does this on purpose. You know the law of Moses. You're the teacher. Notice, though, what Jesus does here, too. Look at the commandments he leaves out. He doesn't give you the Ten Commandments. He doesn't talk about no other gods before me. He doesn't say anything about idolatry, no coveting. So Jesus leaves out all the ones this guy can't follow. Anyway, this guy goes, ah, I've kept all that stuff from my youth. Did he really do that, though? Nah, probably not, (laughs) right? I mean, look look at the context. He's a lot like the Pharisee from a minute ago. He's the guy that's, look at me, me, me. He has this self-inflated, sorry, this this inflated sense of self, this high self-esteem. I've kept all these commandments. Verse 21, oh, sorry, uh, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have distributed to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven, right? And then come follow me. So Jesus says, the only thing you're missing is kingdom citizenship, Jesus is challenging this guy. Your idol is your money. You think your money in your life is what gives you a sense of worth, a sense of security. It's where you get your identity. It's become a God in your life. And as long as you think money is your God, right? You remember that? You can't have two masters, Jesus says. You're not going to serve Yahweh the way you need. So the way to put God first in this guy's specific instance, Jesus tells him, sell everything that you have and give the money to the poor and then follow me. Now, this is not a universal command in that everybody has to always sell everything they have or they can't follow Jesus. But what we do have to do is give up our idols the same way that Jesus called this guy to give up idols, right? And that looks different for everyone, right? Like for some people, I'll give you an example. The most common idol that I see in churches, I guess around, or one of the most common, is children. People treat their kids like you know, they live vicariously. If my kid's not good at lacrosse, I'm not worth anything in life. You know what I mean? And I'm like, okay, first off, lacrosse sucks. Second off, (laughs) uh, you're putting so much pressure on your kids. Now, how do you give up that idol? You can't just get rid of your kids, right? You do the same thing with a spouse. And I'm going to put all this pressure on, okay, well, the answer to that is not, you know, sell your spouse, give all the money to the poor, and follow Jesus. You know what I mean? That's not how that works. But it's a change in that relationship. You have to redefine the, the pressure and the expectations you have in that relationship. So in various ways, we're called to do the same thing, right? Give up our idols. Verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He was presented with a choice. Jesus as his ultimate satisfaction or money as his ultimate satisfaction. He chose the money. 
right? He's sad. He's not going to do it. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, that's how sad he became. You could see it in his face, right? You know, this was not a stoic. <laughs> this was a, not my money, <laughs> right? This was obvious to everybody standing there. So Jesus, seeing he became sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Oh, wait, sorry. Uh, my slides are all out of whack here. Um, it's, I love it. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I'm guessing you've heard this. I want to I talk about this for just a quick second here. Uh, I'm guessing you've been in a church at some point, and some pastor got up and said this. The camel through the eye of a needle, let me explain. There was a gate on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and it was really low, and it was like the gate you had to come in after hours when the main gates were closed. But to get a camel through that gate was really hard because it was such a low gate. They would have to get down and basically drag the camel, and it was really hard. Now, I've read this in books. I've heard pastors say this from the pulpit, that this is the explanation, the historical explanation. Has anybody heard that, or am I just talking, you know, you guys have heard this? Okay, I'm seeing everybody shake their head. Okay, here's the thing. Some guy made that up in the Middle Ages. There, you know, and everybody knows, and people still keep saying it. Here's the problem with that. If, if that's true, what Jesus is saying is it's really hard for somebody with a lot of money to earn their way into the kingdom of God. That's not what he says here. What he's actually saying is it's impossible because a camel cannot fit through the eye of a needle, right? He, he used that image on purpose. It's impossible for somebody with money to come into the kingdom of God. Now, Here's the other thing. He's not saying it's impossible for somebody, only people with money. And if you're poor, it's really easy to come into the kingdom of God, right? If we extend this out, it's impossible for everybody to come into the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about here. Um, that's what he says in this next verse. Look at this. Then those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, this is the, the explanation of the parable. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus says it right there. Let me explain the eye of the needle thing. It's impossible. With you, for you to earn, to be the Pharisee from the first parable there, and to, or the second parable, to earn your way back, it's impossible. It's not going to happen. But with God, it is possible. And that's the point of the, the camel through the eye of the needle. There's no gate. That's not how it works. Right? It's not going to happen without God. Verse 28, and then Peter said, well, see, we've left our homes and followed you. <laughs> of course, Peter. I love this guy so much. <laughs> I, I can relate to that uncomfortable silence. So you just spit out the stupidest thing that pops into your head. That's Peter's go-to move. Anyway, and he said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left, this is Jesus talking now, who has left house or uh, wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come uh, eternal life. So, um, Peter, I mean, we're not going to get into this a lot. Peter goes, well, we, we're not rich because we left everything. And Jesus kind of says, yeah, that's the idea. Kingdom people are willing to give up their stuff. They're willing to, to live with actual kingdom citizenship. So the, the example is, yeah, don't be like that guy, Peter. Good job, right? That's kind of what, kind of what Jesus says. Uh, I love, man, I can't wait to like have coffee with those two and ask them questions about the tone of some of these conversations. All right, now what we're going to do, though, is we're going to jump down. Uh, we're going to skip a few verses. We're going to jump down to verse 
35. As he drew near Jericho, a blind man was sitting at the roadside begging. So in Mark, this guy has a name, Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, if you've heard that name before. Um, in Matthew, the same, par- the same not parable, uh, story is told, except Matthew, there's two of them. There's two of these guys. Uh, Luke and Mark specifically, folk, a lot of people go, see, there's this contradiction in the Bible. But it's not really, right? Like, Giants game. 40,000 people go to the Giants game, right? If I go to the Giants game and I tell you, me and Melissa were at the Giants game, you wouldn't go, no, there's 40,000 people there, right? It doesn't make sense, right? You can, you can narrow it down and just talk about one person in a group. That's what happens here. There's no contradiction, right? All right, so this guy, Bartimaeus, he's sitting outside of Jericho, and uh, he's begging, so he's blind. There's no disability pay in this culture. There's nobody to take care of him. There's not really a lot of uh, nonprofits that will help blind people find jobs or whatever. There was no Braille, I'm guessing. You know, this guy had a rough life. And so he's sitting outside, and he's begging. And then verse 36, And hearing the crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. So he's sitting there, he's begging, and all of a sudden there's a lot of people. So something's going on. So he asks, what's going on? And uh, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. All those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So he asks, what's this crowd about? They go, oh, Jesus is coming. He goes, I've heard of Jesus. That's the guy. So he starts shouting out, Jesus, you know, son of David, have mercy on me. That son of David is important because, and we've beat this to death too, we've hammered this a lot, the line of David, the promise of the Messiah was coming through the line of David. This was not just a, hey, I heard you were David's grandson, right? This is a messianic title. He is shouting out, guy who's probably the Messiah, (laughs) have mercy on me, right? And they were like, shut up, dude, and they kicked him. He goes, get off of me. (laughs) And then he shouts it even louder, Messiah, have mercy on me, right? The guy who's the Messiah, have mercy on me. Look at what he does. He asks for mercy. He knows what he deserves. Mercy is undeserved favor. He doesn't say, hey, I fast twice a week. Fix my sight, right? That's not what he says. All right, keep going. So um, verse 40, Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, uh, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, recover my sight. So Jesus stops. Now, you, these pictures, Jesus is kind of leading the crowd. You know when one guy who's the most important guy in the crowd stops, and the whole crowd kind of screeches to a halt. Uh, like when Biden fell off his bike yesterday. Who's seen this? Why is this guy riding a bicycle, by the way? He's like 140. I'm going to do a stunt where I'm going to make everybody think I'm young. Pulls up, and he fell over, and the whole crowd to a stop. Security was rushing. Okay, that's what happens. Er, to a stop. Everybody's like, why is Jesus stopping to talk to this blind guy? Um, you know, we're all, we got somewhere to be, and we'll read next week. They got to go meet Zacchaeus. Well, you know, the little guy in the tree. Uh, we'll read about this. So anyway, so Jesus stops. He says, bring that blind guy over to me. So they do. And, you know, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, uh, 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 what do you think? <laughs> you know, um, I'd really love a sandwich right? No, my sight, man, right? Like, I don't know. that's another one I want to hear the tone of this conversation. 
but I think, I think what's probably going on here is Jesus is doing this conversation. So everybody knows what's going on, right? There's a crowd watching. Uh, Lord, recover my sight. Verse 42. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. He followed him glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. So remember that phrase, your faith has healed you. Your faith has saved you. It's like this double layer meaning Greek word. Your faith has healed you physically, and it's also saved you spiritually. That's what happened. We see salvation in his reaction. He jumps up, and he starts glorifying God, and then everybody around him, I love this too, his praise was infectious. He loves Jesus so much that the people around him start praising God. It's a pretty cool miracle, right? I mean, somebody who all of a sudden can see, um, it's, it's an emotional moment, right? Like, um, we, we've done this in our culture, you know, not with miracles, but with science. Have you, um, not with um, sight, but with um, hearing, you know? That's one of my, those are the greatest videos on the internet, is those people who get that implant and then hear their mom say their name for the first time and everybody in the whole thing starts crying. You know, that's kind of like this, right? This guy all of a sudden can see things for the first time. It's pretty great. So, he's saved. He starts glorifying God. Now, the question is, all these people in our story that we're reading about, how are they saved? There's this part in the middle of our section that we skipped that explains how this all happens, and it's the key to the passage. So jump back to verse 31. This is how it works. And taking the 12, he said to them, Luke places this in the middle. This story probably happened at a different point. Luke reorganizes things theologically sometimes. So taking the 12, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So Luke has spent this whole section from chapter 9 until the end of the beginning of 19 there, the middle of 19. Jesus is on this laser focus to the cross, this laser focus to Jerusalem. It starts in chapter 9 where he's like, and then we're going up to Jerusalem, right? So that's a big chunk of the book where this is happening. And Jesus says, we got to go to fulfill all the things the prophets had written. So there were two sides to this, right? There was the Messiah would bring the kingdom of God with him, and all this wonderful stuff would happen. But at the same side, at the other side, I mean, there was this tension. At the same time, the Messiah is going to suffer, and people didn't really know what to do with that. Right? How is the, the chosen one going to suffer at the same time he's going to bring the kingdom of God? And so Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem to accomplish that stuff. And then verse 32, for he will be delivered over the Gentiles. He will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But, oh wait, sorry. Uh, yeah, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was saying. So how is the Son of Man going to bring this great and glorious triumph? How is he going to bring the kingdom of God and inaugurate this new era that we were, he was preaching about last week, you know, when we were in the part we read last week? How is this all going to happen? Like being Superman, I'm going to defeat everybody, all my, you know, is that how it works? Through strength? No, it's not. How does he bring it? They're going to flog him. They're going to kill him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to shamefully treat him. Then he's going to die, and then he's going to rise again. And even the way the kingdom worked, even the understanding of how that was going to work was they, the disciples didn't get it yet. 
Now, I love how all of us read this and they go, what are they, stupid? <laughs> right? Here's the thing. The disciples are probably a really great representation of humanity. They're a very diverse group of people. Some of them were like accountants. Some of them were fishermen, like, you know, everyday, like manual labor kind of stuff. Some of them were, John was brilliant with his Greek. Peter, not so much, right? Like, the thing is, I think the disciples are a good enough group to go, that's probably how I would have acted too. <laughs> Instead of with arrogance going, I would have understood what Jesus is talking about. Sin has really blinded people, us as well. And now on the other side of the cross, we get it, right? We're filled with the Spirit and there's a lot, you know. So anyway, they don't get it. Jesus is trying to teach them, though, this is how the kingdom of God is going to be brought in. We have this laser focus to the cross, and I'm going to show up, and it is not going to go well for me. I'm going to die. They're going to beat me up. They're going to rip out my beard. They're going to make fun of me. They're going to flog me. It's going to, that, that weakness is how it happens. Now, that's our passage. We took a very large chunk today. I could have taken each one of these sections separately and done a sermon about each one of these sections. And as I looked at it, I was looking at this, right? The widow section. We could talk about prayer in our lives and how important prayer is in our lives. Uh, we already did that sermon in the book of Luke. The Pharisee and the tax collector. We could have talked about humility, right? And earning your way to God. We've already done that sermon in Luke. The children. We could have talked about what is faith. We've already done that sermon in Luke. The rich young ruler, we could have talked about money. How many times recently have we talked about money? Five or six, right? There was a whole section about money. We've already beat that to death. The blind man healing, and we could have talked about Jesus and the restoration of the world and the, how he's putting everything back together. But we've already done that sermon in Luke. And as I was looking at it, I decided to go a different way. I wanted to do something else. I wanted to show you on a bigger picture why Luke placed all of these stories together next to each other, when they all might not have happened one right after the other, the way Luke organized this section theologically. And the way to tell what he did was to look at this. Look at the characters. Who's in the kingdom and who's out of the kingdom in this, in this passage, in this chapter? Widows were helpless and the bottom of society. Jesus goes, she's in. She's the prayerful one. In that same, he talks about, you know, the persecuted. You know, well, God, you know, God will give justice to his persecuted. That's another character we didn't really hit on. But a persecuted person is a completely powerless person being hurt for their beliefs, right? The bottom of society. Again, they're in. They're the ones on God's side. Then we have a crooked judge, right? And judges have a lot of power. Those are the people at the top of society. And Jesus goes, that guy that everybody respects, he's the judge. He's on the outs. It's not him. Then again, we have a Pharisee. Pharisees were the church people. This is the guy that everybody in this culture who was trying to be religious, this is the guy they all respected. Jesus picks this person specifically for this parable, and he goes, he's out. Then he goes, the tax collector, the traitor, the, the child molester, that's the guy he's in. That's completely backwards. Then you jump to the next story, children. Again, Worthless, bottom of society. Nobody super cared about kids until they were old enough to work the farm. He goes, that's the kind of person you need to emulate their faith. They're on the inn. Again, we move to the next guy, the rich idolater. In this culture, people super respected having money. They thought this was a prosperity gospel kind of culture. They thought God was blessing this person. This is a person 
like Job, that God is blessed because probably because of his great faith. And Jesus goes, no. His money is his idol, and he's on the out. That completely flipped the cultural expectations. But who's in? Not the rich guy. The homeless beggar who's blind sitting on the corner, Bartimaeus. That guy's in. Everything in this chapter is backwards from the way that people in this culture would have expected it to happen. Do you remember picking teams in high school or elementary school? Now, most of you just thought about that and had a panic attack because you're not good at sports. If you remember standing on that line as people are getting picked ahead of you, I don't know what that's like. I always got picked first. Just kidding. I was always picking, and I was brutal. I was the mean kid that you all hated who was like, I can't believe I get stuck with Peter. (laughs) Right? I was an awful little child, right? Now, when you're picking teams, you want to pick the kids, you know, I mean, if you want to win, right? You want to pick the best kids because, you know, you want to win. I think I may have told this story before, but I'll tell it again. When I was in senior year of high school, we had this intramural basketball league at our school, and we played these games at lunchtime, and it was a big deal. We did this every year. And my senior year, this teacher organized it. Um, And this guy was in his mid-20s at this point, and he had played sports in college, and he was very athletic, and just like me, he was very competitive, right? And he wanted to win this league. And so because he was the one who organized the league, this is what he did. He put me on a team with a freshman and a junior hire, neither of which who really played basketball. And then he gave himself two other seniors so that he could win the league, right? So, and I remember he chose the two tallest guys in our school to be on his team. Uh, anyway, so it came down to, this was the game before the championship, right? It's like a bracket system. So me and him are playing each other. Our teams, whoops, sorry, I was like, it's loud out there. Um, our teams are playing each other in the game before the championship. And I decided there's no way I'm losing to this guy. He rigged it, and I was furious, and I was good at basketball. And so I pretended like that freshman and that junior hire weren't even out there. And I went three on one, and I beat that other team. <laughs> and I remember, I don't know why he was a teacher, but he has a bad attitude, but he was real mad. I remember him slamming the ball down at the end of it. And then he canceled the rest of the, he canceled the championship game. We didn't even play it. We didn't even get to finish. He was like such a spoil sport, right? Now, the point of this, after this game, and this is a really stupid illustration, and it sounds really arrogant, and nobody cares about sports in the real world, but at the end of that game, let's, you know, I mean, again, let's not go nuts. This is an intramural high school basketball league, but nobody was looking, <laughs> right? People in the, in the school, they all knew I was better than him at basketball. He rigged it, and I still beat him with a bunch of scrubs on my team. That's how it went. Nobody talked about what a great game the freshman and junior hire on my team had. You know why? Because they didn't touch the ball the entire game, right? I was on a team with a bunch of losers, and I won anyway. Here's the thing. That's how God builds his team on purpose. He always picks the freshman and the junior hire so that when the game is over and he wins, everybody goes, oh, that guy just won the game, right? He doesn't pick the two tallest guys. There's no instance in history when he does this. He's always flipping things on his head, right? You've got Jacob and Esau. Esau's the big, strong, hairy dude, and Jacob's the guy who writes poetry and paints his nails black, right? And God goes, I want that guy in a culture where this manly men was a whole thing, right? He's always choosing these people, like the consistent, I can go through the whole of scripture, right? David. Remember David getting picked? All his brothers are these big, strong, you know, and David, they're like, 
you know, when Samuel is picking the king, he goes, it's none of these. Do you have another brother? God told me it's one of these brothers. Oh, it's the idiot out with the sheep. It can't be him though, right? And that's the guy that Jesus picks. It happens, or that God picks, right? It happens over and over and over and over again so that at the end of the day, God gets the glory. We don't get the glory. None of these people in our story today, in this passage, in chapter 18, none of these people have what it takes to be in. None of these people can come to God and say, here I am, you need to accept me because of this thing that I've done for you. Right? You need my game, I'm so good at basketball. Right? None of, these people, that's what they all have in common. They all know they can't do it on their own. They're all desperate for help. So that's the application for us. Jump this now to our century, right? Jump this to our day and age. Let's be honest. We don't like to ask for help, do we? It's tough, right? I don't think anybody is, gets real excited when they can't. Let me tell you, as the guy who can usually not tie my shoes, it's very embarrassing to be like in a grocery store, hey, Melissa, could you tie my shoe real quick? You know what I mean? I, I would rather be, you know, I don't know, strong and like not admit weakness. That, that attitude, though, of strength, I have to be the superhero kind of thing, has no place in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about weakness. It's the widow pleading for justice, the tax collector and Bartimaeus pleading for mercy, the infants with absolutely no sense of independence, the disciples who have left everything to follow Jesus. These are, our exam- these are the heroes that Jesus holds up and says, these are the people you should be like. These are the people that know they need a Savior. And so the question then is, how does our Savior save us? How does it work? Right? By modeling this weakness, his strength, the pinnacle of this passage, right? Um, Who was I just talking about that with this week or a couple weeks? Is that you? Yeah. About a lot of times the way that the Bible, in in Western literature, we always put the most important part at the end. But in Scripture, they they don't do that. Sometimes they'll put it right in the middle, you know, in ancient writings. It's like... um, like a pyramid, kind of like it goes up and then down. And the part in the middle is like the top. And that's what he does here. He puts the part about Jesus' death and resurrection in the middle. His strength comes from losing. His most glorious moment, where his glory is seen the most, was being nailed to a cross. There's this wordplay throughout the Gospels and in Scripture. It's the idea of being raised and lifted up. The idea is this, that the Bible constantly talks about how the Savior will be elevated. He'll be lifted up. The assumption being is he'll be put on a pedestal or he'll like go up and sit on a throne kind of a thing. But then in the book of John, when we see it, he's lifted up. That same word is used to describe they lifted him up on a cross, right? That's, that's when Jesus is lifted up. Through that lifting up, through the, his work on the cross, what did he do? Through the ultimate example of weakness, he's defeated death. And so what that means is you don't have to be strong. You don't have to bring things to the Father and say, God, is this enough? This, this is what I have, right? Is this, is this going to work? All you have to do is show up and say this. Jesus promised me that what he did was enough. And that's the end of the story. And God goes, yep, sure was. Now you're in. But I was the tax collector. Okay. Jesus wasn't. <laughs> Right? But I was the widow at the bottom of society. I was the child. I was whatever. This is my sin. This is who I was. God goes, I know. 
right? I picked you to be on my team so that at the end of the day, everybody goes, he gets the glory. <laughs>